fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Well, great to be here, Dan. Um, I have to say, I was momentarily confused prepping for this, but very, very short-lived, as I thought we were watching a show about dentists and what they did to kids. Totally different show, but I loved it. No, absolutely. And, you know, when this was recommended, I thought this was about the homicidal clown in the Twisted Metal series who drives an ice cream truck truck and blows people up with a series of missiles. We were both wrong, but I think I was pleasantly surprised. And the person who made me pleasantly surprised, our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? This week, Dan, I'm overlooking this valley full of these the most lovely purple flowers. For some reason, the locals seem to avoid the area, but it looks great to me, so I'm going to go get down in there and uh, check it out. Well, I love that, Ben. You're never afraid as a scientist to get your hands dirty, and I think those flowers are you kind of the subject of some controversy as to what they're all about, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. And, you know, as Denon, as you kind of alluded to, we're talking about the TV show, the Netflix series Sweet Tooth. Now, this show takes place in a weird fantasy-esque post post-apocalyptic dystopia, where a devastating virus has both killed a lot of people and caused every child to be born an animal-human hybrid. Now, this show follows one such kid and his misadventures, and regular adventures, as he searches for his mother, uh, who may, be, may or may not be the source of this whole, this whole situation. So let's get right into this. I'm curious what your first impressions were after you saw this show. Uh, ben, since you recommended this, I want to get your thoughts first. Well, first, uh, my first impression was anxiety. Uh, watching these children in peril throughout the, <laughs> throughout the series was a little rough, uh, you know, a lot of children making very stupid decisions and uh, putting themselves in danger. But once you get over that and realize that eh, they're the main characters, probably things aren't going to get that bad for them. Uh, it was it was it was it was very enjoyable, and I really liked the implication of uh, seeing uh, what uh, what a what the Great Crumble, as the show called it, would be. What what happens when society falls apart? I thought that was very interesting. You know, Ben, I kind of find that interesting too—the whole apocalypse thing. But what I found fascinating from this is it put two things together, a nice juxtaposition, kids being born hybrid and disease killing people. Obviously, disease is killing people at this scale is a major tragedy, something we actually are too sadly familiar with in society. No familiarity with kids turning into hybrids. That was also viewed as very apocalyptic by many people in the movie, uh, TV show. It's a TV show, not a movie. So I found that juxtaposition fascinating. Well, I love that you say, you know, you say, Denon, TV show, movie. I get those screwed up all the time. I feel like I've given you, that's my, my the virus that I've imparted upon to you. Uh, but I, I've got a question for you guys. When I finished watching this, I had no idea who this show was for. You know, it seems a little too adult for kids. Um, but it's also a little childish in its execution for adults. I don't know who this show is for. Uh, I know that's not really a question we typically deal with, but I'm curious. What did you think, Denon? Oh, clearly this show is for the AI that's currently taking over the world then, Dan. I think that's the <laughs> natural conclusion. You've ruled out humanity. Um, that's all that's left. But it, 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 it could be the target audience is, I don't know, 
18 to 26-year-olds, a very narrow band between um, the two extremes you described. I, I don't know, Ben, how, how are you feeling about this, AI or 20-year-olds? Well, I think it maybe is for people who read the, the books and thought they were too confusing and wanted a simpler, a, a simple a simplified down uh, storyline rather than what's in the books. I, I think that's what's going on here. Uh, and that makes perfect sense. I, I mean, it was it struck me as kind of odd. Uh, and the other thing that kind of struck me as weird is, you know, when I was watching the show, it is very clear that there are a lot of COVID parallels. You know, we've got you got a, we've got a virus that's made in a lab. You know, we've got people freaking out and burning people in their homes. Now, that's not really a COVID parallel, but I feel like some people may have gone to that extreme had this been a little bit worse. Uh, you've got, you know, forcing tests on people to see if they have the virus or not. I think, you know, we kind of got to some of those levels at some point. Um, and I feel like if this is a comment, a commentary on COVID, this feels like it came out a little too soon considering what we're still dealing with right now. What, did you feel, Ben, that any of this stuff, uh, did that affect you at all while you were watching this or did that kind of, you know, go over? Uh, I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of uh, parallels. You know, obviously we see the guy who uh, takes off his PPE after sanitizing the hospital area to vape. And, you know, the other sanitizer guy is admonishing him for, uh, for you know, not taking this seriously. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of the microcosm of the pandemic is that some people are just less risk averse than others and are willing to just, you know, do whatever and are a lot more concerned about the toxicity of the sanitization liquid than they are about the virus or what's in their vape pen. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting you, you bring that up and some of the other features. And Dan, your comment, you know, about the proximity to that we're actually still in the COVID pandemic reminds me when I learned about uh, the TV show MASH and the movie MASH, which placed itself in the Korean War, um, even though those mobile army hospitals still weren't really very prevalent in the Korean War. They were a Vietnam War thing, but the Vietnam War was very fresh, in fact, going on when it came out, I believe. Whereas way later, I remember in my life, a, a, a sort of show about mobile army hospitals placed in Vietnam. Um, and I've watched things in TV shows are getting way closer to the actual historical event, or if not while it's happening. I mean, look at the number of sort of biops around various people during like Bush's administration and stuff. So it's an interesting thing that we're watching and making um, fictional shows about things essentially as they're happening. I don't know what's up with that. You're the TV expert. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I've got three... I've got three tidbits for you. Number one, uh, MASH, the TV show, went on longer than the Korean War, that it, you know, the, which is the setting for that TV show. Number two, in 2000, I believe, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, uh, they were writing a sitcom that was going to be based on whoever won the 2000 election, and they ended up coming up with Where's My Bush, which I think was the name of that show, which is about the Bush family. Uh, and that was, I mean, concurrent with, with his administration. So that's about as close as you can get. Um, and and thirdly, with this particular show, this uh, this was this is what surprised me is this is actually based on a comic book from the 2010s, and the pilot was shot in 2019, which was way before the COVID pandemic. The first season was filmed during the pandemic, so you know as you mentioned, some of the parallels there been, uh, you know, some of that was probably taken from what was going on currently. But I thought that was, you know, almost prescient. Uh, I don't know that the, the showrunners were psychic, but this really kind of hit on things 
right before they kicked off, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but, you know, let's talk about this virus. You know, we, we a lot of viruses have been, you know, it's been in the zeitgeist for about almost, you know, almost two years now. Um, what makes them dangerous? What, you know, how can we, you know, what's the term gain of function, which is, you know, kind of what people are using now. There seems to be a lot of that going on in this storyline, especially when it, as it comes to the sick. But, you know, one of the things I found really interesting that I want to hit on first is that this particular disease seems to have been derived from ex an extremophile, a microbe. You know, extremophile is a microbe that's able to live in extreme conditions, be it high underwater pressure in the Mariana Trench or high temperatures in a volcano or even extreme cold in Antarctica, which is where we see this one pulled from, from an, Ar from an Arctic ice core. Uh, I thought this was a very interesting take. Uh, what were your first impressions, Denon? Well, the first thing I thought about is, you know, did the fact that it had lived and survived under conditions make it particularly more viral? And, you know, using my expert biology knowledge, <laughs> I would say that's not probably uh, the issue in connection, but it would make it probably more resistant to anything you're trying to do to it because, you know, a lot of the ways we attack viruses depend on its fragility in certain conditions. Um, and being able to survive in the ice core probably makes it strong in lots of different places. So I'm curious, Ben, from your side, uh, were you thinking both or just uh, like me, fragility versus being, you know, deadly? Yeah. So the fact that the virus can survive freezing tells us that it's it's going to be tough to, you know, sanitize it in, you know, simple ways. Uh, but since it's a virus, it's presumably when it's frozen in the ice, it, you know, it's, it's not really living. You know, viruses aren't really a living thing. They're just pieces of code that uh, get injected into our own cells and reprogram them for reproduction. So it seems to me more likely that, you know, all we have here, all we know for sure is that here's a virus that has a protein coat that can keep it alive while it's uh, frozen solid in this uh, Arctic ice core, uh, you know, which I think is, uh, you know, pretty cool. I, I don't know if we know of a lot of viruses that can survive such uh, experiences. Uh, Dan, have you heard of any? I haven't, but you bring up a couple of good points there because I think extremophiles do have some very interesting properties. And what both of you guys mentioned is that they are robust. I think we can agree on that. Now, obviously, they're more robust in the certain environments to which they are, have evolved to, to survive, obviously. And, and I wonder if the extreme cold gives them something. But I just really thought that was interesting because one of the things that I always just found fascinating about extremophiles, especially ones that can live in high heat or high pressure, is just how they live under those conditions. They are... They they can adapt very easily because if they don't, you know, this, the, the conditions that they exist in are very, very harsh. And I think that that's something to think about um, because one of the other properties of this virus seems to be its ability to change genetic code. You know, we would learn later on that, you know, as soon as this virus hits, that's when every baby born is a, an animal-human hybrid. And I think that's interesting. And if we tie that back into the virus, you know, you know some of the vaccines that were created to battle COVID are mRNA based. You know, these are basically pieces of um, mRNA, messenger RNA, which is similar to DNA, a protein creating strand is stuck in your body, your cells absorb it, and then they start creating those proteins. Now, while that doesn't affect any long-term DNA, I think this is an interesting way to kind of begin a conversation on how a virus could start to, in the human body, create different proteins. Uh, I know not your expertise, Denon, but what do you think about that? 
Well, I think I want to go back briefly. You know, you're going down this track, which I think is very interesting, and ask the question, why was it so deadly, right? And you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we made our, our mRNA-based um, vaccine this time around for COVID. This particular virus evolved, as you said, for extreme conditions. So it does raise the question. It also probably evolved before there were humans. Why would it even be able to attack our DNA? We know lots of viruses don't cross from the animals they infect into humans, some do cross. And I think what's key here is um, Birdie, the mom who's not the mom, you know, reveals that they're doing a lot of work to start with this as a template to form cures and that if it goes bad, they'll form viruses. So all of the stuff in the movie really is not native, I think, to this extremophile. It is stuff they build later. They engineer. Something an evil engineer might consider doing. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, it definitely seems like uh, this is a very man-made situation here. You know, she talks about how if this research gets out, it could be the end of the world. So clearly these uh, scientists knew what they were doing uh, when they were preparing to, when they were creating this research. Um, and they, you know, didn't take the right safe. Well, they may have taken the right safeguards and then the army uh, screwed it all up. Uh, Dan, do you think this would have inevitably gotten out or is it the army's fault that it got out here? You know, that's a great question because I, when you, you know, w if we're going to go down this path, you know, the other thing that I wanted to mention here, which is going to kind of speak to what you guys are talking about, which is, you know, the CRISPR technology, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Uh, I think we've talked about CRISPR a lot. I just wanted to make sure we got that acronym, which I love. Um, but, you know, this is derived from a bacteria's natural defense against viruses. And this, you know, the Cas9 enzyme cuts up genetic code and then we can splice it inside, right? So to answer your question, Denon, obviously these extremophiles were, you know, they're not they're not geared towards human beings. They're sitting in an ice core, you know, miles, I'm guessing miles. I, I don't think that core was that long, but let's say miles below the surface, uh, you know, haven't, haven't encountered homo sapiens at all. So how would this be geared to them? And I think, you know, to your answer, uh, I, I think that this is some natural defense that they have that we've turned into, instead of using it to splice genetics, turn it into a virus. And then to answer your question, Ben, I think when you start playing with fire and you're around flammable things, meaning if you're playing with viruses that can infect humans, someone's going to get burned, aka someone's going to get infected. Um, I don't know if that's the, I, I think I may have hit that parallel, you know, kind of right on the head, not so much a metaphor when you, when I strain it like that. But what do you think about that, Ben? Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it does to some degree. And based on how quickly the crumble seems to have occurred, I wonder if the virus was already out um, to some degree and that maybe like a, a, an effective catalyst is what got released by the army. Because if, if we see, you know, every, every, uh, every baby born like on a single day, all of a sudden is now a hybrid baby, which is kind of the implication of the show, you know, that Im implies an infectiousness of this disease that is way higher than anything we've ever seen. Uh, it'd be very difficult for a virus to completely blanket the world, you know, overnight. So, you know, I think something else happened. I think this virus was probably already out, right, Denon? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing because we don't often think of viruses getting turned on or having a trigger. It could be a two-part virus. You're, you're right, Ben. Whatever we do, we have to be able to explain both the combined speed and deadliness. Um, 
and the speed of the deadliness, if I can put those two together. I mean, it spread fast, but it also seemed to kill very quickly when you watch the level of panic, which I'm going to take as realistic reporting and not just TV showmanship, Dan. I'm just going to make that assumption here um, for, for, for the purposes of discussing this, because we know if viruses are too deadly, they burn themselves out, right? If you kill your host too quickly as a virus, you don't get to go to the next host. You rely on your host walking around and breathing on people. Um, so it's an interesting conundrum for this virus as portrayed. Now, I will say we have a little bit of data and it's very interesting, you know, the doctor whose name I can't remember momentarily, his wife gets it, and he has certainly enough time to get her to the hospital and get her some level of treatment that she shows up in later episodes. So it's very, but, but he's clearly panicked and rushing while the world is sort of rioting around him. So it's fast, but it, there is a time delay. And I'm, I, I don't know if we got any sense of that, um, if you all felt you had a good handle on the numbers here and what's going on. Ben, do you feel uh, any sort of good number counts here? Not especially, unfortunately. You know, we we aren't given that information. Uh, it's clear that a lot of people, though, died very quickly. I I like that you brought up uh, uh, Doctor Singh's wife, though, uh, Ronnie, because she's she clearly somehow survives for a while before she starts getting this uh, treatment from you know this this uh, pan, this uh, uh, apocalypse doctor. Uh, later on in the show. So I do wonder, like, is she, you know, naturally more resistant to the symptoms or the sickness somehow that she's able to survive long enough that she can get this treatment that then keeps her alive? Uh, you know, I do wonder if this virus maybe, you know, maybe there's some sort of mutation that some people have that, you know, they're actually living with the virus. Everybody actually has it. And only some people you know, there's some smaller fraction of people who just don't show the symptoms because of, you know, something about inherent about their uh, biology. Does that, what do you think about that, Dan? I think that that's exactly right. I mean, you're talking about something that's very similar to the TV show The Walking Dead, where everyone has this virus. I think that explains the speed. I think that's great insight because it shows you how quickly things spread. You know, as you remember, in, in the COVID in the COVID pandemic, what we're looking at are people who are asymptomatic passing it on to other people. And I think that this thing, to go on what you said earlier, is probably getting passed silently, undetected because there are no outward symptoms. And then it suddenly turned on and now everyone's got it and some people are dying. Maybe some people have those natural mutations that protect them against it. And then what you have is that ability to, uh, you know, whatever it's doing is now affecting the children. And that's why they're born hybrids, because we hear this sentence and they say that the sick and the hybrid children are two sides of the same coin. And I think that we need to explain that. And I think that this comes from, you know, maybe some part of that, uh, you know, the CRISPR analogy I was making. There must be some level of genetic uh, engineering on the, you know, on the DNA level going on here. And before we answer this question, I want to take you guys back down memory lane to something the audience has not heard before, because we did an entire episode on hybrids focusing on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I had a hard drive that crashed. That episode from our first season, while one of the greatest episodes we've ever done, is now lost to history. Denon, I want to get your thoughts both on the loss of that of that incredible, you know, groundbreaking episode and what you think uh, about the connection between the six and the hybrids. 
Well, clearly this is slightly different because they're not becoming full animals that have human characteristics like the wonderful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who are basically turtles with human characteristics as opposed to humans with a few random animal parts thrown in. Right. So <laughs> that's true. clearly a superior creature um, and something that happened through strange radioactive waste, nuclear, and then genetic manipulation. But you're right. A great episode. Um, clearly something that someday will be covered somehow. We don't know how. Um, with time travel, I think, when we invent that. It's like cry- it's like cryonics then, and it's like, you know, we- we're going to freeze it in time, and when we have the technology to be able to recover it, that's when it's going to happen. Just like freezing your head in a jar for future generations to solve the problem, right? Exactly. Um, now, with these hybrids, I have an interesting theory I'm going to propose right out here at the beginning, that they're, they're from the same original source, the extremophile, but they're two very different phenomena because Birdie talks clearly about manipulating this core organism's DNA and then using it to um, try and come up with a universal cure. And it was also apparently manipulated by some people that turned into a virus. So I think you have one parent thing with two separate actual outcomes, things with completely different genetic properties, one causing hybrid children and flying around the world, and one causing the sick. In that sense, they're still different sides of the same coin, but they're kind of separated a bit. It's like you split your coin in half. Um, That's where I'm going. I'm going to stick to it until Ben convinces me of a better idea. You know, well, I like that because it, it makes sense. You know, why is there only one lab, one project working on this amazing you know, extremophile that they found. Obviously, lots of different projects would, could spring out of this. So it makes sense that, you know, one group is working on making it into some horrible bioterror weapon, another's, you know, trying to make vaccines. And then, you know, you know, maybe there's something going on with, you know, if it's this great virus that they're doing all this research on, maybe how the hybrids are happening is they brought in animal DNA in, into this uh, project too, where they're, you know, use, they're playing around with animal features using this uh, powerful virus to, you know, as, as a furthering of their experimentation. And so if you have some of this animal DNA uh, as part of your virus, you know, that could explain how it's getting into these uh, hybrid children. Right, Dan? Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that there's something interesting going on there because what you have are hybrid children who can't get sick from this virus. So there's some level of immunity, which would imply that there's an active ingredient in this virus creating the hybrid children. But also, you know, I don't know if it's so much experimenting with other animals as it is tapping into what already exists in the biological blueprint, a.k.a. our DNA, because, you know, as we know, there are weird vestigial pieces of our DNA. Uh, You know, we have, you know, we've got a tail, right? Like we have gills when we're a baby. Uh, We have, you know, there's this great article I'm going to put on on the website where, you know, scientists have gone back in the evolutionary chain and they've seen, well, our, our salivary glands, could actually produce venom. All they need is the right protein, in, you know, that gets turned on in our DNA. But we have those abilities. I think, you know, the epigenetics has shown us this as well. But I think from, you know, a, a physical structure point, which is what we're talking about, some of these hybrid children have physical structures like antlers coming out of Gus's head. I think that this stuff is all there right in our DNA. And this virus has figured out the key to turning these things on and off. Don't you agree, Denon? Well, I mostly, Dan, I'm going to put a little slight twist on that because clearly Ben inspired me when he mentioned, you know, 
experimenting with other animals' DNA, I immediately flash back to, you know, our second greatest episode after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is, of course, Jurassic Park, um, <laughs> where we learned that to reconstruct dinosaurs, you need to use frog DNA, right? And I, and I think from an experimentation point, um, whether or not the, the animal DNA was integrated into the extremophiles, um, you know, product that they were making that then attacked humans is probably less relevant than that other animals were involved in the experimentation. Um, and I think you're right. This is training the virus to turn on these other pieces. So it may not be an integration of the DNA from the other animals, but it may be a training on other animals' DNA that then gets the virus ready to turn those D DNA pieces on. That's what it does when it affects the children. It goes in, and instead of reproducing itself like a standard um, disease virus. It's kind of like a retrovirus. It goes in, re-engineers the DNA to turn on these new pieces. Um, and it's doing it randomly, and that's why you're getting random hybrid kids. So I'm combining the best of Ben and the best of Dan to make a unified theory of hybrid children. That makes a lot of sense, Dan. And there's a, there's a lot of things in our genome that are, are vestigial, but only just barely. You know, humans used to be able to make our own vitamin C. Um, and then a mutation broke that gene, uh, and it didn't hurt us because we lived in a place with lots of fresh fruit, and therefore we always we got vitamin C from our diet. And the ancestors who couldn't make their own vitamin C just lived on, and everything was okay. So I, I think it's pretty clear that you know there's a lot of stuff in there that you know only takes a couple of little fixes that this virus could be doing. You know, you fix a little bit of the genome here, and you get back you know hair all over your body. You fix a little bit of the genome, you know, somewhere else, you know, your tail's long all of a sudden. You know, it's it makes a lot of sense that, you know, it only takes some minor changes to get pretty big feature changes. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that that's, you know, that's also one of the subject of a fascinating nouns episode that I did with Dr. Nathan Lentz, where he talks about all these different things, the, the weird things that happen in biology, in evolution, the things that get turned on and off, including the vitamin C thing you talked about, why we have a tail. That's a great episode. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. And it also kind of answers the question on why we have different degrees of hybrid. You know, you've got Gus, who's mostly human with some antlers and ears and a weird, you know, a weird taste for maple syrup. And then you got Bobby, the talking groundhog, I want to say. <laughs> I think he's a groundhog. And he's like mostly animal, but kind of human. And none of the hybrids can talk. That's another kind of weird thing. And I don't know if that's a vocal cord thing uh, or what's going on there. If there's some kind of biological uh, mechanism that's not allowing them to talk, but that's an interesting thing. Uh, but one of the things, you know, that's kind of you know, the meta, you know, the ethically dubious in this, uh, and I guess I'm, I'm putting that very lightly, but they're trying to capture all these children to experiment on them to find an answer to this, to this virus. And, you know, this is interesting. We've got some real world practical applications of this. I'm walking a fine line here because I'm really trying to make this work. But I was reading this article about how some Israeli scientists have cracked the code on how to use pig organs in humans. And there's this very interesting process where when you have an organ, it's covered in, uh, you know, a, a network of blood vessels. And it's those blood vessels that your body rejects. So what they've done is they've coated them with a human layer placent from, you know, derived from placenta cells of those blood vessels and then the human body will then you know will, uh, it, you won't reject it it'll be able to be accepted into the human body they've done this with hearts lungs liver kidney and pancreas now if there's already a human component to this I'm not suggesting that we raise hybrid human hybrid children in order to harvest them for their organs but if you were going to I think it would work uh, what do you think about that Denon? 
I, I don't know, Dan, you just disturbed me in so many directions. <laughs> but because um, <laughs> I'm not even sure what the question is. Um, so you're, is the question, oh, God, you know. So I, I think I know what the question is. And, and the I question is, Dan, I'll tell you the question. The question is, if we had hum- you know, if we had the desire to save the solo human race, could we harvest animal hybrid children and use their organs inside of us uh, is what I'm asking. Oh, yes. Okay. No, we don't need to do that, Dan. I'm going with that's what's bizarre about this. They're totally missing the point. Whatever is giving the, the children immunity, you're going to find it in the bloodstream. You don't need to experiment on them. You don't need to take whole organs. You just need a simple blood sample and study that because I suspect that'll give you more than enough information about what's protecting them from the virus. I mean, that's where the bulk of our immune system really functions. Maybe you take some samples from their lymph nodes. I think those are involved in the immune system too. Um, I've, I've promoted Ben to biologists, so he'll correct my errors um, as, as I wrap that up. But I think you just, you just take blood samples, Dan, way more ethically viable and probably much more likely to give you a solution. Yeah, that, I think you you make a good point there, Dan, in that you know th- the immune system is probably the most important part. Figuring out, uh, you know, harvesting those antibodies from the hybrid children that can potentially uh, stop the sick. Now, one potential issue is if everybody's infected, including potentially the hybrid children, it's not ma- necessarily an antibody issue, but it's a biology issue where our, you know. There's, there's, you know, there's the concept of carriers and infected, infected, right? During the plague, the the rats, you know, carried the plague, but they didn't really get sick from it. And so, potentially, one uh, concern here is that the hybrids are just carriers of the virus, and there's a reason. The reason they're not affected by it is something about their organs, and not necessarily something about what's in their blood. Uh, that would be my concern and would unfortunately have to lead to this experimentation if you want to figure it out from the children themselves. You know, we definitely uh, we definitely came full circle. I didn't expect you to come that way, Ben. You know, I threw that that question out to Denon, expecting his optimistic, you know, uh, hero of humanity kind of answer. But, you know, it brings it to kind of a dark place. And I think, you know, if I'm understanding all this correctly, to come back to what you were mentioning earlier, Ben about these purple flowers, we see them, they're somehow tied into this virus, they're somehow tied into the sick, they sprout up uh, where the bodies are buried. I think this is a very interesting connection uh, about not only the circle of life, but how all things are connected. I'm curious, Denon, how do you see this connection with plant life, with a flowering plant connected to a virus, connected to a human, connected to other animals? Well, it does make me wonder, first of all, why I keep thinking they're blue when they're clearly purple, but that's a whole separate issue. Um, you asked how I perceive this. So, you know, I was just going to be honest about my my color challenges. Um, but I think there's an interesting thing here is maybe the flowers contain the evidence of the cure. We know we get a lot of interesting medicine. A lot of our first medicines were derived from plant-based chemicals that were naturally occurring. I think aspirin is one of the great examples of that. So I I really um, was concerned when I heard that they're always avoiding the flowers that grew where the sick people were. I'm wondering if this is a neutralizing effect on the virus um, that that comes from the infected people in an interesting way. Um, I think plants are a better route to the cure here. I was really, um, I'm looking forward to that showing up at some point. Um, ben, how, how comfortable are you? Do you think plants can be the cure here? 
Uh, they could be. I think it's interesting that the plants are getting, uh, are being reacting to either the bodies or to the virus itself. I think it maybe just goes to show how integrated biology is on this planet. You know, we think about how all animals are connected, but plants use the same DNA as we do. And so, you know, it, it makes sense then that the uh, plants could potentially react to the dead bodies or the presence of the virus, just like uh, animals would. So, you know, it, it all it all kind of comes full circle and makes sense to me. No, I think that that's great. And I love that segue because if you guys will allow me, Den, and you know, in a previous episode, you got to discuss a heretofore unmentioned pet peeve of yours, you know, surrounding Ebenezer and the Grinch. I'm going to take it in a a little more serious uh, direction because I'm going to jump on my soapbox for a quick second and tie up this show uh, because this is near and dear to my heart. You know, w- what we're really looking at is the connection between humans, animals, plants, uh, viruses, uh, this whole, the nature's web, right? And I think a lot of humans' ills comes from not respecting that, and and instead of wanting to live in harmony with nature, we seem to want to dominate every aspect of it, which includes not only enslaving animals, including chimpanzees for medical experiments when they share 98.9% of our DNA. They're basically human. They're a couple of clicks away from being human, and we treat them so terribly. And so we not only enslave them, but we tinker with the fundamental pathways of nature, which include these viruses, which may be responsible for the COVID pandemic, which is definitely responsible for the sick and the crumble. And I think in order for human beings to really progress, to significantly progress beyond where we are, and I'm talking about technologically, guys, coming back to the show, I think we need to discover our connection with the animal kingdom, accept our place in it, achieve harmony, achieve that equilibrium, and then we can, you know, I think then as a, as a society we'll move on because I'm going to put up two different articles on the website. One is about wildlife crossings. This is where human beings are creating wildlife crossings around highways. Which is important because highways are artificial um, segmentation of an animal's habitat. So creating crossways for them allows them to go over a highway instead of getting killed. Um, And I think we need less of what happened in Montana, which is a grizzly bear was killed for attacking someone sleeping in a tent. Now, remember, human beings, especially in the United States, have the right to kill someone who enters into their home. We're allowed to kill an intruder with a gun in the United States, but somehow a, a bear is not allowed to kill an intruder on in its home so we hunt down that bear and actually we were killing bears without knowing which bear it was this kind of stuff really annoys me but i feel like this television show really brings together human animal hybrid and it the underlying theme here guys as i close up i'm going to step down off my soapbox is that we really need to accept that big man needs to accept that his child is a hybrid and it's okay as a matter of fact maybe the next step of evolution which is what bear believes this is what I took out of this, and that is my conclusion on Sweet Tooth. Then I'm going to get you first crack uh, to either ignore what I said completely, to add on to it, or to argue against it. Well, Dan, I'm just so excited you have that view. I completely agree with you. And once again, you've proven my other pet peeve and main point, that this whole idea of artificial slash man-made is just a silly category. Everything is part of nature because humans are part of nature. So anything we make is nature. And natural. It just may not be good and useful. Great and so I'm totally with you. 
Yeah, we have to we have to align ourselves with our inner nature. Um, if that's a word or a phrase that I can go with. So I, I'm with you. I'm standing kind of to the side on the soapbox, um, <laughs> hoping not to get knocked off. That's fair. Ben, where do you fit on this field? No pressure, no societal pressure to agree with either one of us. <laughs> no, I, I think the hybrids, I think it's good to think of the hybrids as, you know, the, the next step. Uh, you know, clearly there, you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on with them. And of all the people in the show, uh, they seem to have the most respect for each other and seem to be the nicest uh, creatures. So I'm going to go with them for the future and not not the last men or the uh, quarrelsome children either. <laughs> well, I love that. And I feel like we should do some sort of, you know, uh, an analysis in a future episode about the, you know, we talk about a lot of apocalypse, apocalypse, uh, apocalypses. Um, I, I think we should definitely look into that in a future episode. But until then, we got us, we got our errors, additions and omissions section here, guys. Things we want to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Obviously, animal human connection is not one of those things, but I'm sure there was something else we didn't talk about that you wanted to get to, Dan. Well, so for me, there's a couple, two things. Uh, the main one is I usually don't notice um, foreshadowing and connections in TV shows. Um, I loved in this one, I don't know why I was hypersensitive to it, um, a, an early shot of a candy bar in a machine before you know about Sweet Tooth. Um, they spent a long time filming that candy bar. Um, and then you have Sweet Tooth in the candy bars. I also caught that Birdie, when, when you sort of first are introduced, um, offers hot chocolate to the the, um, the the dad, she makes the comment, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. Oh. Um, and so I love that little nod in there. Um, I caught that. And then on the other side, I, I just, it's my pet peeve. I, I apparently have a lot of them because <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm bringing those up now. But it's like, hasn't anyone in any of these TV shows or movies actually ever read or watched a science fiction or fantasy TV show or movie? Uh, I mean, the dad follows all of the worst advice, telling the kid, never leave the fence, the world's burned down, lying. Lying to children about the disasters around them after an apocalypse is usually what la leads to lots of bad things. So you embrace children early on, give them the full story, and leverage the strength of the dear child. Um, so there, there, there's mine. That was my little mini soapbox, Dan. No, I love it. I, I love that we've made pet peeves acceptable on this show. I find them hilarious. Uh, the little things that annoy us, they're very fun. Um, and that is a weird segue to go to Ben, but I am curious if maybe there's something that annoyed you. We can put that airs additions and annoyances. Uh, but what did you what did you want to talk about in this show that we didn't quite get to, Ben? Well, I, I think one thing that's really interesting to me is how it seems like some infrastructure is somehow surviving the apocalypse. Uh, you know, towards the end, we see them using a satellite phone. And, I, you know, it's 10-ish, 15-ish years since the apocalypse. It is very impressive that, you know, a satellite phone system would still work after all of that time. Uh, you know, no, I can't imagine anyone's operating those ground stations or launching new satellites uh, in, in those <laughs> intervening years. So, you know, I, I really want to know uh, how are some of these things still working? How do the kids have power for their VR setup? Uh, you know, <laughs> like a lot of this stuff wouldn't work, you know. <laughs> 
you know, where, where's the oil coming from for, to run their generator if that's how they're doing it? Like, it, it's a big mystery to me. Well, I love that because you even see that when the plane is crashed and somehow the radio is working when clearly their plane has been overrun with all kinds of shrubbery and plants. So it's been there a long time. Uh, I'm with you on that, Ben. One of, you know, I'm going to keep this short. One of the things I really liked was that all the kids, uh, especially when they're, you know, where they are, they're all wearing gift store clothing. You know, when they're in Yellowstone and when they're in one other place. I love their gift store clothing. And I also loved, uh, you know, when you mentioned where the, the people were spraying down uh, right outside the hospital. There's these cool little drones and these little uh, robots cleaning stuff up. I think we're going we're getting to that point, And I love that. So now we've got a question from our audience, guys. So I'm going to read this. We're going to answer it. Uh, this is a fun part of the show. And this one comes from Phil McCracken, who says, Hey guys, love the show. The Brain Trust has truly inspired me in several ways. I now wear a hat wherever I go, thanks to Dr. Denon. Uh, I know that my hat is a trilby, not a fedora, thanks to the masterful analysis of Daniel J. Glenn. I like that. Uh, And I'm working on my own AI-powered robot, which in honor of the enigmatic engineer, I'm calling the BenBot 6000. My goal is to make it as lifelike as Ben Seepser, complete with a solar-powered bow tie that will double as a wind turbine on windy days. I already love this guy. Uh, So my question is about the short Ice Age from Love, Death, and Robots. I know that there's a very similar, that this is very similar to the Simpsons episode, The Genesis Tub, which in and of itself is an homage to the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Little People. Ice Age is different because the show ends where the entire civilization seems to advance itself to the point of turning themselves into energy and zapping themselves into another dimension. How do you guys, what do you guys think is going on here? Thank you. Love the show. This is a great question, something that I think we've pondered privately. But then and I'm curious, what do you think happens at the end of that? I mean, are they turning themselves into energy and zapping them off into another dimension? Uh, are they just turning into energy itself and dissipating? Or is none of that and they're transporting themselves across the galaxy into another time period? What do you think? Oh, I definitely thought this was transportation across the galaxy. I felt they had figured out how to manipulate gravity and basically open wormholes and do the classic warp drive travel. Um, that That's where I went with it. I Through the whole thing, I, of course, was wondering what their source of energy is. Now, it was a very, very big old-fashioned fridge, so maybe it was just generating a lot of power. You know, if they were in a modern, you know, energy-efficient fridge um, because of all of our advances, they may not have been able to have that, that scientific breakthrough. But I definitely, I'm going to go with transwarp drive. Um, ben, how about you? I, I kind of like this idea of maybe an, an energy singularity where these, uh, you know, these beings have somehow transcended uh, physical form and have become this kind of hive energy mind that allows them to, uh, you know, exist without a physical form and, you know, be cool and live together as a nice communal society of pure energy. Uh, that, that seems like my kind of cup of tea there. Well, if they're going to be cool, they got to go into another refrigerator. I'm with you, Ben. Uh, I really like that. I like those those answers. And if you want to be featured on the show, you know, we're easy to get a hold of. You can get in touch with us in several different ways. You can find the show on social media, Twitter, at FGGGBTPod, Facebook, at FGGGBT. And we have an email address for questions, comments, general correspondence, or topics you want us to tackle next. And that's questions at FGGGBT.com. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Dennett, where can people find you? Well, people can find me by flipping my name. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Denon Michael, and I'm on Facebook at Prof Denon Michael. You just stick a prof in there. Ben, 
Where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And you can find me on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And as you listen to us on your favorite podcast channel, remember, um, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, leave a comment below so we can uh, hear your thoughts. And please like and subscribe. Thanks. And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information that could be misused by people hell-bent on world domination. So be careful with this information. Remember, you want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.